Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, we're having a, actually a special Coach's Corner panel uh, this evening, and I'll introduce tonight's uh, uh, very special panelist, if you will, uh, in just a moment. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by the chairman of the Western Golf Association. Kevin Buggy is going to be joining me a little bit later on uh, in the broadcast. So I'm really, really excited uh, to have him uh, on the show. We're going to talk about uh, a number of different things about what the uh, WGA, for short, uh, does and uh, their scholarship programs, the Evans Scholars uh, Foundation and the program uh, that helps out uh, a lot of folks with education, and obviously it's a great caddy program as well uh, through the WGA. So we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later in the broadcast. But thank you, everybody, for joining me live this evening. Always excited to have you join me here. And just remember, we are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. Best way to find us is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. And if you're not able to join us live, just go to that link, and scroll down to the on-demand section. All of the previously aired shows uh, are there in their entirety. You can just go down and, and scroll and listen to uh, an episode maybe that you've missed or re-listen to an episode that maybe you really enjoyed, and, and uh, hopefully there was some good tips and, and useful information in there for you. Uh, and always, um, each week, as I said, uh, always excited to, uh, to have the, the guests on and so forth. And uh, there's a lot of other great platforms, and you'll hear about those at the end of the show uh, for those of you that uh, maybe listen to, for instance, Spotify or some of the other uh, mainstream platforms like iTunes, uh, it'll tell you how to go there as well. So, all right, uh, I'm going to bring on my very special guest um, tonight to joining me on a special Coach's Corner panel. Of course, I'm talking about Brandon Stukesbury. Uh, he is the head golf professional at the historic uh, Metairie Golf, uh, sorry, Country Club outside New Orleans. Uh, he's also an Amazon number one best-selling author of two books. Uh, the Wedge Book, which was out in 2015, and most recently, The Putter Book, earlier this year. Uh, over the last 10 years, he's been ranked among the top 10 teachers in his state by Golf Digest and was part of the magazine's elite best young teachers list. Uh, he's a three-time PGA Teacher of the Year and a regular contributor in golf media around the world, and he's also a Golf Tips Magazine Top 25 instructor. So without further ado, let me bring on uh, my good friend, Brandon Stukesbury. Good evening, Brandon. Welcome. Hey, Ted, thanks so much for having me on. I always have a, a good time with you on the Coach's Corner and looking forward to another great night. All right, well, I appreciate it. And uh, 
I, I know you, it sounds like you're, you're in the car, so just be careful. I don't want to get any accidents, uh, so we'll make sure you keep your eye on the road. Um, so, so, Brandon, what I thought we would do, uh, as I was mentioning to you off air, uh, in the recent issue coming out for the summer, in fact, it's out on newsstands right now, uh, Golf Tips Magazine, its latest issue, the, uh, the uh, July-August edition, uh, is out on newsstands right now. And one of the tips in there that, um, and articles, if you will, that you put in actually uh, was featured a number of years ago, about five or six years ago in Golf Tips, I believe back in 2016, uh, was talking about the five anti-fundamentals of the short game. And when I was putting this particular issue together, uh, I wanted to sort of repurpose, in addition to some new tips we put in, I wanted to bring back some, some favorites of, of past issues and so forth that a lot of uh, our readers really, really enjoyed. And yours, of course, uh, was uh, sort of front and center. And so we're going to talk about that on the Coach's Corner because I think that uh, there's a lot of great information in that article. And I'm going to try to walk you through it as best I can because I know you don't have it in front of you uh, to, to draw from. But uh, I'm, hopefully I'll do my best to, to help you out. And if we have enough time, uh, there may be an extra anti-fundamental you might be able to throw in there uh, at the end of the segment. But let me start off this. So let's, first off, let's talk about um, the difference between what golf typically refers to a fundamental and why you're kind of coming up with the term anti-fundamental. What do you mean by that? Well, I have to, as I was telling you all there, I have to give a lot of credit to a mentor and former employer of mine, Mr. Jim McLean. That's enough uh, name that a lot of your listeners will know. He was the first one that, that, that really ever I ever heard talk about the, the word anti-fundamental. Um, and so I stole the name from him. And I'll tell you why I came up with it. It was really the reason why I wrote the book. Um, I, I started teaching short game, and I, I continued to hear people that would give me these ideas and these things that it either had been passed down from, you know, friend to friend or from generation to generation or, or frankly, some old wives' tales on what you should do in terms of short game. Um, and they would – come up all the time. And if you think about a fundamental, most people, when they think about fundamental, they would talk about a grip or posture or alignment. Now, I could make a really good argument why those aren't fundamentals either, but the point is most people would define a fundamental as something that's present and necessary every um, And I kept hearing these things that they would call fundamental and, frankly, just aren't. They aren't fundamental at all to a good short game. As a matter of fact, most of them are detrimental to a good short game. So I felt like the word Mm -hmm. anti-fundamental might be kind of catchy, right? You know, what's an anti-fundamental? Well, it's something that if you do it, it's actually going to make things worse as opposed to make things better, which is what most people would think of as a fundamental. Right, right, well said. And you, in this particular um, article slash tip, if you will, uh, you put to, together, as you said, um, some of the more, uh, five of the most common that you see, particularly working so much in the short game, you see this a lot. And I thought this would be a great segment to have on Coach's Corner, and who better to have on but you to really talk about and dial in on some of this. So I'm going to give you a little bit of information here on the first one, just to, you know, to, to kind of refresh your memory a little bit, 
and then I'll let you go to it. So the first any fundamental that you talk about in here is referring to uh, the ball back and leaning forward. So as an example, this is one that you, you mentioned that you hear a lot uh, where golfers are, are sort of under the understanding that they believe that they have to sort of hit sharply down with a lot of uh, with a forward shaft lean uh, to ensure they catch the ball first and make clean contact. And this is one here that you sort of put in the anti-fundamental contact uh, category, uh, ball back and, and sort of leaning that shaft forward. So let's talk about first, explain why that's not an effective um, technique, number one, and what really people should be doing uh, in order to execute those types of shots a little bit more efficiently. Yeah, so I think this really comes from two different ideas, right? The, the first idea is exactly what you just mentioned, is that people think that in order to get clean contact, they're better off putting the ball back in their stance and hitting down on it sharply. And somehow that's going to protect the club maybe from catching in the ground. I'll get into that in a second, why that's exactly actually has the opposite effect. The other reason I think it exists is because I think people inherently understand that a chip shot generally should be hit very low. Well, if you want to hit something with low trajectory, you need low loft. And one of the main ways to reduce loft is to deliver more forward shaft lean. And so I think people also... Right tend to do that or learn to do that because they know it makes the ball come out low. There are some issues and concerns that, that stem from that as well. Um, here's why it's a bad thing. What most people don't understand is how the sole of the club and of the wedge work when interacting with the ground. And so let's just talk full swing for a second with a 7-iron or an 8-iron. Those golf mm-hmm. clubs have relatively little bounce on them as compared to a sand wedge. And the reason for that is because we're moving the golf club very, very fast when compared to a wedge. So an average swing speed with a 7-iron, you know, might be 80 to 85 miles an hour for a typical adult, average adult male. Well, that's moving fast enough to where when the leading edge hits the dirt, it's going to peel a divot. It's going to cut through the dirt and peel a divot. So you can hit down on the ball and the club enter the ground and peel the divot and it not have any effect on how the club moves through the dirt really at all because it's got enough speed and force behind it. Right. If you're hitting a 20-yard pitch shot, the club doesn't have enough speed to catch the leading edge and peel a divot and cut through the ground. So it ends up sticking in the ground, right? And the leading edge grabs mm-hmm. and the club just stops people mistakenly define that as I decel. Well, that's not really what happened. You hit the ground, and the ground decelerated the club in a hurry. Right? That, that you know, you didn't actually right. make it slow down, hitting the ground did. And so, what happens when you put the ball back in your stance is you increase the angle of attack, which exposes the leading edge more, and then you lean the shaft forward, which exposes the leading edge even more, and now you have a very sharp leading edge of the, of the iron or the wedge head coming down at a very steep angle, which leaves you with virtually zero margin for error. If you don't hit it perfect, 
then the club's going to interact with the ground in a very violent way that does not lend itself to good short game shots. And so people have this idea that it's helpful for them because it helps them to hit it, quote, unquote, clean, when the very reason they're not hitting it clean are the things that they're encouraging to happen when they play the ball back. And so that's why I call it an anti-fundamental. As far as I'm concerned, that needs to be erased completely from the verbiage and teaching of short game all across the world. I think every golfer would be better off without having heard that line, play the ball back and lead the shaft forward. Um, And I know that's a brash statement, but I'll, I'll stand behind it, and I would argue it any day. It's hugely detrimental to a lot of players and anti-fundamental. Yeah, and we see a lot of amateur golfers, particularly, you see them out of the range, out in the practice area, and they're doing exactly what you're talking about. They're just thumping it into the ground and not really getting any forward momentum because, again, the leading edge is just digging in. And, again, because, as you said, unlike a 7-iron or even an 8-iron, they're not swinging with the same uh, speed and therefore they're not able to get through the turf as easily. So without, uh, you know, without that uh, ability, uh, you know, they're, they're just not going to hit a very good, crisp, solid uh, wedge shot, especially if they're trying to pitch it or even if they're trying to chip it. Um, again, they're run, running into a lot of difficulty. So what you're talking about here, too, um, a better way to do it is, again, your, your body, typically with shorter shots like that, you're going to lean a little bit more of your weight might be on your left leg a little bit or your left foot. Um, but you're talking about instead of having the ball back, you're suggesting moving it to the middle or even a little bit forward in the stance, correct? Yeah. So remember, it's all about managing loft. And so the reason we put the ball back in our stance is so that we can lower loft. Well, there are other ways to lower loft. You can use a less lofted golf club. So a 56-degree sandwich played off your back toe might have the same loft on it as a 46-degree pitching wedge played from the middle. And the play, the shot right. played from the middle has a much more margin for error, and the, the sole of the golf club interacts with the ground much better, and you're able to hit it better, right? And so, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying I don't want your weight leaned so far to the left. If you want to lean it left a little bit, I can stomach that, but not nearly as much as most people think. And I don't want the ball any further back than the middle of the stand, period. And so right. the first question I usually get is, well, okay, coach, but, but how do I hit it? But now I can't hit it low. Well, change the golf club. Use a less yeah. lofted <laughs> golf club that makes it come out lower, right? And so you end up delivering the same amount of loft to the shot, but you get a much better sole interaction between the, the wedge and the turf. Right, and you're going to hit much a much more solid shot to begin with as well because now you're actually making clean contact with the ball as opposed to digging the leading edge into the ground, which a lot of uh, amateurs do. All right, I want to move on to the next fundamental, uh, anti-fundamental, excuse me, uh, and this one here is interesting as well. This is another common one, and you actually come right out here and say, I'm not really sure where this one came from, and that is an open stance and swinging left. Um, so talk about, again, what, what's happening here, what a lot of golfers do, and then what your um, suggestion is to make it a better, uh, get better results. 
Yeah, again, I, I just like I said in the article, I really have no clue where this came from. I don't know who cooked this up. Uh, somebody's going to have to sit me down and explain to me the, the science behind why it would be a good idea to willingly cut across the ball so much, um, you know, when you're trying to hit a short game shot. Now, a lot of times this is taught when trying to add trajectory to the shot, okay? But, again, right. if you think about what creates trajectory, it's all about managing three things, okay? The loft on the golf club, which is set by the club we choose, a 60-degree versus a 56 versus a 50 or whatever. The angle of the shaft at the moment of delivery, so whether that shaft is leaning forward or left forward or neutral or backward, the face angle, whether the face is open or square, and then the angle of attack could also be considered, whether you're hitting significantly down on it or not so much down on it. Those four things are really the only things that, that really have any impact on trajectory. So you come back and you say, okay, mm-hmm. what does swinging left get me? And my answer to that question is absolutely nothing, right? It, it makes it harder right. because swinging left also means you're swinging down more. Well, we don't want to right. get down on it more sharply because that lowers loft. As we hit down on it more sharply, we lean the handle forward more. That also lowers loft, right? And then you have the, you have right. the whole problem of, of the path as the head swings through the strike, moving left of the target, which produces a glancing blow, and that gets a little bit erratic. So somebody's going to have to sit me down somewhere along the way and explain to me why opening the stance and swinging left makes sense. Now, there might be a case or two where you could say you might want to open your feet and stance a little bit to help you rotate a little easier to relieve the pressure on your front hip. Okay, I, I could go with that, but swinging the club left just makes no sense to me. And frankly, yeah. <laughs> it makes it much harder to do the very thing that most people are trying to do when I see them open their stance and swing left, and that's add trajectory to the shot. And so that's why I call that one an anti-fundamental. And, and really what you're laying out here as well, Brandon, is by setting up uh, again, more square and setting the the shaft or the club rather along the the target line is going to yield you a better result. And I think the other thing too, uh, Brandon, and uh, you may or may not uh, agree with this. The other thing too, you know, we always talk about coming over the top. The problem with trying to cut it to the left and trying to pull across to the left is, in order to be able to do that, your body has to react in a different way in order to get you in that position. So a lot of times what we'll see, if people knowing that they've got a cut left, sometimes will throw their shoulders out in order to get the club into that position and then to pull it left. So, again, you're cutting across the ball, and depending, as you pointed out, how your club face is situated, uh, you're not only going to come down with less loft, but you're also running the risk that now you're going to be cutting across the ball, which is going to produce that slice spin, which we definitely don't want. So... Even with a high lofted club, you're still going to have that issue uh, or, uh, you know, other issues can creep in as well. So, you know, I, I understand where you come across here with this sort of anti-fundamental 
Uh, and, and again, I, I think a lot of times people misunderstood. Uh, you gave a great example just a second ago, for instance, where a lot of people have been told, well, you know what, if you're not able to clear your hips, you know, open your feet a little bit, maybe open your, your, your stance to allow you to be able to clear it through. And in some way, what fashion, they've misunderstood that and thought, okay, well, that means I've got to pull it left. So I, I'm not really sure where it comes from either, but I think a lot of times it's people not understanding the instruction they're giving or misinterpreting uh, something that's said. So we've got to be, make sure we're really clear on that. All right, the third fundament, any fundamental is, and this is one here that's really, really interesting because you, you quote a number of statistics here, and I'll just read a couple of things out here quickly, and then I'll get you to respond. Uh, you talk about whether, you know, whether somebody is shooting a, a, a 68 or 108, essentially over 70% of your golf shots will be hit with less than a full swing. So we're in that short game category again where we're not necessarily hitting a full swing. And any fundamental number three is, as you put it, one club for all shots. So a lot of people might just have one wedge in their bag um, for all of those shots, for those little short shots, whether it be a chip shot or pitch shot. And there might be other options. Tell us a little about this anti-fundamental, one club, one club for all shots. Yeah, so so here's the example I usually use for most folks, right? And so if you were out on the golf course and you normally hit your 8-iron 140 yards, okay, I'm making that number up, but let's say you hit it 140 yards. Sure. And you come up on a shot and you're 142 yards from the green. You're going to pull your 8-iron, okay? And then you come up to the next hole and you're 148 yards or 152 yards from the flag. You're just going to hit your 8-iron harder, right? Right. No. Nobody's going to do that. You're going to pull the 7-iron. The beauty of us having multiple irons is that we can make the same motion with multiple different irons and get multiple different results. This would be a way harder game if we had one golf club and we had to vary how hard or how far we hit that one golf club every time we had a different distance. Except when we come to short game, people love to do that. It doesn't matter yep. if you're 40 yards from the green or 60 yards from the green or 80 yards from the green or 20 yards from the green. They're going to pull their next wedge, whatever. And they use it for every single shot. And that's just crazy to me because you're making it way harder on yourself. Now you have to change. You have to be the one to do all the changing in order to get different results. That would be the same thing yep. as you hit an 8-iron 140 yards and you come up on a hole that's 151 and you hit your 8-iron harder, and then the next hole it's 132 and you hit your 8-iron softer. Nobody would do that. You would hit 7-iron and then 9-iron. Now, look, at the highest levels, and by the highest levels I mean the PGA Tour, you see this more often. You see guys that will use one wedge more often. But there's a couple of caveats that you have to understand with that. Number one, they're literally a collection of the best 100 players on the planet with a golf club in their hand. Yep. Okay? They don't really have the same rules as most of us do, number one. Number two, the conditions that they play under are much different than the conditions that we play under, meaning – their wedges are virtually always brand new. They never have any dirt in them. 
the golf ball is always perfect and brand new. The condition of the turf is very consistent from week to week to week. And so those variables are not changing for those players. They do change for us. And so they have a little Mm -hmm. bit of an advantage when it comes to using just one golf club because they want to reduce the number of variables that they have to consider. So they don't want to have to learn the launch on a 60-degree wedge and a 56-degree wedge and a 50-degree wedge. They'd rather just do it with one club. But I'm here to tell you, not all of them do it that way. Some of them would be better off if they didn't do it that way. And certainly at the amateur golf level, we need to be able to have multiple tools to hit multiple shots. The best way I can describe it is if a carpenter showed up to your house to build a new deck and all he had was a hammer, what would you do? You'd fire the carpenter (laughs) because he or she can't build you a deck with just a hammer. Right, a carpenter shows up with a tool belt that has multiple tools in it that are used interchangeably depending on what the situation demands. And that's exactly how I want you to look at your wedges. And so that's why I called it an anti-fundamental, use one wedge. Makes it way harder than it has to be. Yeah, and, you know, even just in general, and I know this is going to be more referencing the the, uh, the full swing but I remember in, in Jack Nicholas's uh, video, uh, Golf My Way, you know, he talked about, he said, one of the things, he said, that's why we've got 14 clubs in the bag. He said, my swing, and he, again, he's talking full swing here, but he said, is exactly the same. He said, but I've just got a different club in my hand. And he said, I allow the, what the club was designed to do. So if it's got a high loft, like a, a wedge or a lower loft, like a, in that case, you know, they were still using two irons and whatnot, um, you know, that's the only difference, but the swings were exactly the same. Now, obviously, in the short game, there are some different modifications, but the premise is still there. It's the same, is that, you know, that's why you have multiple clubs in the bag is for a variety of different shots. And your example that you gave a few moments ago, you know, um, where you had a you know 140-yard shot, which might be your 8-iron under normal circumstances, and now you're faced at the next hole with 152 your eight iron's not likely going to be the best, um, you know, option to, to get. Your seven iron, as you suggest, is a better option. Well, if you only had your eight iron in the bag, you wouldn't have a choice. So, you know, it, whenever possible, um, you know, and you talk about, you know, maybe for an example, uh, maybe pack a few extra wedges in there and get rid of clubs that you're not necessarily going to need. Like a five wood example is maybe a club most people with hybrids out there now they don't really need that in their bag. So. You know, you can replace some of the, the clubs because you could still only have 14 in the bag uh, and bring some extra wedges because they're going to come in use at some point throughout your round. And, uh, again, uh, you know, when you're talking about the highest players in the world uh, on the PGA or even the LPGA Tour, there are a few that might get away with just one wedge. But more often than not, I remember Tom Kite as an example. He was one of the first ones I remember talking about four wedges in the bag. And there was a reason for that because there were different uses that he would find out in the golf course uh, for each of those. And I think, uh, as you suggest, I think our average amateur golfers would be well served uh, not to just rely on that one club. All right, we're going to go to number four, another anti-fundamental. And this is one uh, you point out is is an old one, and that is chipping with straight arms. Uh, A chip uh, is just a putt with a a lofted club, 
you know, or keep your arm straight so you don't flip the club are comments you hear all the time. Let's put this one to rest as well as uh, our fourth anti-fundamental. Yeah, so so here's another one, right, that, that I think was good intentioned when it started, whenever it started, um, but I think it's taken way out of context most of the time now. And so I don't mind the idea of thinking about a chip being a putt with a lofted club, but that's a – that's a, a very specific shot where the ball will only be in the air for maybe a few feet. Now, hear me out. I didn't say yards. I said feet. So imagine the ball only yep. flying a couple of yards. Think about how big the golf swing would have to be with a pitching wedge or a nine iron to get the ball to fly six feet it would be about the size of a putting stroke, right? And mm-hmm. so I don't yep. think this is, is completely useless because I think in that very tiny little, you know, little nuanced chip shot where you're right off the edge of the green, I think this can work. But beyond that, it starts to be really problematic, right? Because what happens is mm-hmm. you take all the feel – and all the flow out of your arms. It would literally be like me asking you to throw a baseball or throw a football without your throwing arm bending. Mm-hmm. Think about how crazy that would be, right? It just nobody would do that. Yep. Okay. Um, the other thing it would be the other the other problem that comes from that is it tends to make your body move in very strange ways. Okay, and so when when you have stiff arms, then you're forced to move in a particular way with your body, so that your arms can, or that the club can move on the ground properly, and the the bending and straightening and rebending of the arms sort of helps you manage that. If you have straight stiff arms, then you have to manage it with your body. And then that just adds a, a very challenging, complex layer to you being able to hit the ground and hit the ball in the right spot every time. And so I, I just don't – nobody does this, right? No good short game player you ever watch does this. You know, am I guilty of, of sometimes teaching and saying that a, that a chip is a putt with a lofted club? Yes, I've said it, right? Um but I think it gets misinterpreted, and that was why I felt it important to, to include it in this list. Yeah, and I think it, it, this goes back – I mean, you raise a great point. I think this goes back to, um, I, again, a, a misunderstanding. Um, again, if you're, you're up along the, the, the collar of the green and maybe you need to just kind of pop it, uh, you know, might even be only inches – uh, over uh, over the collar, let's say, as an example, you know, you're obviously not going to have a lot of uh, flex in your arms, um, and that might be okay. But as you said, the further away you get, um, if you're doing that with stiff arms, especially if you're in a situation where, uh, you know, maybe you need to, to chip it and you're in a very tight lie, like you're, you're in the, uh, you know, still a little bit uh, in the front of the green in the fairway, and you try to do that, you're going to have, you know, 
not great results to be, to, uh, you know, for sure. And I think the other thing too um, is that with with stiff arms like that brings a lot of tension in the body. And you want when you're when you're doing any of these sort of finesse type shots, you want to have a suppleness, if you will, in your body um, and or lack of tension uh, in order to be able to really feel what's going on. And if you're sort of got your arms sort of ramrod straight and you're trying to you know, do that motion. Like you said, the body uh, can only react certain ways and you're just not going to be able to get um, the necessary movements that are required to, to do a chip shot uh, in the manner that you're talking about. So I think that's a great one as well. And again, I think it's a lot of it, uh, Brandon, is a misunderstanding. Of sometimes we say things and, you know, we don't feel we have to clarify every single thing we say and unfortunately, there's those out there that maybe misinterpret it. So this is a good way for people to, to say, okay, now I understand what you're talking about. All right, our fifth fun- anti-fundamental, uh, and this is one that really takes us into the bunker. Uh, and again, it's very similar to the first one, and that is uh, we obviously want to lean, uh, is leaning forward and hitting down in a bunker shot. Uh, talk about sort of the, the do's and the don'ts here. What's the first thing? Why is that a bad thing? Uh, sort of leaning forward and hitting down into the bunker and what should the golfer should, should be doing uh, in order to do it correctly. Yeah. So I think this one, I think this one stems from, again, our lack of understanding as a general rule for what we're trying to accomplish in a bunker. The thing you have to remember is that when you're in a green side bunker, now I'm not talking about a fairway bunker here. I'm talking about a bunker that's next mm-hmm. to a green, green side bunker. It's the only shot in golf where we're not actually trying to hit the ball. We're trying to move or displace sand. And then the ball flies or gets pushed by that displaced sand. That's very different than what we do out of a fairway. If we're out of the fairway and we try to move dirt and hope that the ball would be pushed by the dirt, we would not be very good. The ball would not go very far, and we would not be very good. We're trying to have clean contact out of a fairway. I think a lot of times people mistakenly take this idea of clean contact and try to apply it to a bunker. The other the other mistake I think people make is because they know they have to get under the ball to make it go up, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times they think hitting down on it more allows them to get under it. Here's the problem. You get the same issue that you get when you try to play the ball back off your right toe with the leading edge of the wedge getting too exposed, right? And so Mm -hmm. it ends up entering into the sand perhaps the right distance behind the ball, an inch and a half or two inches behind the ball, right? But Mm -hmm. the sand reacts very different than the dirt does, and the ball goes nowhere. We end up hitting it fat. Or worse, the wedge does exactly what it's supposed to do. It regulates how far the wedge digs into the sand, meaning it bounces off the sand to the middle of the ball, and the ball goes 70 yards over the green into the water. We've all seen that 
right? So mm-hmm. right. really people have this really people have this idea all wrong. We should be trying to make a splash of sand, make a divot of sand out of a bunker that's very thin. I don't want it to be heavy. I don't want it to be deep because sand won't fly very far. And so the Mm -hmm. divot's got to be really thin. It's got to be really shallow. And that certainly doesn't come from hitting down on it. And so that's why I call this an anti-fundamental. I think the reason this gets taught is if you watch a lot of videos of older golfers, right, older professional players, mm-hmm. people like uh, Seve Ballesteros, um, uh, uh, Gary Player, you know, guys that generally went down in history as being very, very good bunker players, most of those guys played out of bunkers that are very different than what we play out of today. Today's bunkers right. are much deeper, much better manicured, meaning the ball sits on top of the bunker instead of, you know, getting down into a hole or something where it wasn't manicured as well. Um, the, the edges are higher. The greens are firmer. All those things lead to those guys having to use that sort of technique to get down and get at the ball. Well, we don't have to do that in modern times, right? And if we try to do it, a lot of times mm-hmm. we can't even get the ball out of the bunker because our bunkers tend to be deeper with steeper lips and higher edges. And so that perhaps is where this idea came from, um, but, but it's, it's really problematic. I used to make the joke that if, if I could find myself a busy enough driving range, I could make a living as a teacher just standing in a bunker because – I think yep. <laughs> it's very misunderstood, and I think it's very, frankly, it's very easy to hit bunker shots if you understand a, a couple of small core principles that I think a lot of people don't understand, and that's why I included it here on this list. Yeah, and, and, and just to, to go back to you know some of the, the earlier players like, like Seve Ballesteros and, and Gary as an example – you know, as you mentioned, the bunkers were much different. They weren't as deep, number one. Uh, but also the sand tended to be a little firmer, a little more hard-packed. So obviously, they, they, like you said, they had to get, be able to dig in a little bit more. So they had to approach it a little bit differently. One of the things I really like about this particular anti-fundamental that you've got, and an and example, and we're going to tell people how they can uh, sort of check it out for themselves afterwards, but... Um, you know, in, in the first image, you know, I'm going to describe it as best as I possibly can, is, you know, and this is where the anti-fundamental comes in, is, you know, you've got the ball pretty much in the center of your stance. You've got a forward lean in your body to the point where your shoulders are almost square or almost level, rather. And, you know, you've set up where essentially no matter how you swing, you're going to come in very steep into the ball. In the second photo where you're set up, much differently, as you suggest the way we should be, is your shoulders are more angled, much like a regular uh, shot that you would hit, and the ball is moved up quite a bit forward, up towards your left heel, in fact, and you're actually swinging on a much shallower plane, if you will. And what's interesting is in the first photo, you probably got, I would say by the looks of things, 65 to 70% of your weight 
uh, is over on your lead foot, whereas in the second photo, which is a more accurate description of what we should be doing, it's a 50-50. You're not favoring your front leg. So essentially all you need to do is just make a good golf swing, and the club's going to do the rest for you. So it really sort of debunks the myth of having to play the ball back, much like we talked about in the first anti-fundamental, and having to dig down deep into the sand, because the sand is, as you said, much different in today's bunkers than what they were 20, 30 years ago. And I think this is why so many people struggle with their bunker shots, is because of improper technique. Would you agree? 100% would absolutely agree. Again, I think there's been more damage to bunker games that's been done from the idea that you have to aim left and swing left in a bunker um, than, than perhaps any other place in short game. Now, make no mistake, you can hit a bunker shot doing that. It's just it unbelievably more challenging. Um, and, and as a teacher, I don't think we are to try to make things harder. I think we are to try to make things easier. And so um, you play a bunker, you know, if you make a full swing on a 40-yard pitch shot and make a divot, you can play out of a bunker. The challenge mm-hmm. is making the golf ball the middle of the divot. And if you can do that, then you can hit bunker shots. Right? So it's not necessary let me just, to open yeah, let me your just, stance and do all this funny stuff. Right. Let me Let me just – uh, add something here and, and get your, your thoughts on this. So in, in the setup that you've got here in this particular one, where, which is the correct setup with the ball moved up a little forward, obviously in this particular setup, the ball is going to come out, it's going to come up with a higher trajectory and um, you know, hopefully land fairly softly uh, and, and be able to you know, get as close to the, to the pin as we want. Let's say with a, with a, with a bunker uh, shot similar to this, but let's say the pin is cut on the far side where we've got a little bit more distance, we're not necessarily going to fly the ball all the way back to a back pin, so there's going to be some roll. So in that case like that, would we want to move the ball maybe slightly back in the stance, or what would we do in a case like that where the pin is maybe, uh, or the flag is further back in the the green, um, and we're in a, a green side bunker that's on the opposite side? Are there anything differently that we would do than what you're doing here? Yeah, so I'm going to answer your question with a question. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll pose your question a different way. If I were hitting a regular chip shot, okay. we're not in a bunker, right? We're, we're just off the front edge of the green. If I were hitting a regular chip shot and I needed to land it and have it roll more, what change would I make? People change would say, well, oh, I'd just use, uh, yeah, I'd change the golf club. I'd use less loft. And that's your answer. Mm-hmm. Right. right. I, I hate, See, I hate right. that somewhere along the way, some some a manufacturer or somebody called uh, one of the wedges a sand wedge. Right. Right. <laughs> Again, they can all be used out of the sand and all produce very different results. Some are high and stop quick. Some come out lower and release more. Listen, I played golf. I played in a member guest tournament with my dad over this past weekend. I hit a greenside bunker shot with an eight iron mm-hmm. because the pin, the yep. ball needed to roll that far to get from where I was. The bunker was in the very front of the green, 
and the pen was in the very back of the green. And I, I didn't I didn't want to try to carry it 40 yards in the air and have it stop really quickly. Right. That would have been very dangerous. And so I had to use an 8-iron, and I opened the face. I played it up off my left heel, just like I talk about in the article, right, and hit a normal bunker shot, right? The ball came out lower, mm-hmm. but it, it flew about the same distance and hit and released a lot more because I used less loft. So – that would be the that would be how I would answer that question. Just change the golf club. If you needed to fly farther or you needed to roll more, right? Change the golf club or lower the mm-hmm. loft. Yeah, I think the mistake. Yeah, I think the. Yeah, I think the mistake, as you're pointing out, that a lot of amateurs make, is they think that they've got to change the swing or they've got to change something else all the time. And a lot of times, again, as, as I pointed out earlier with with Nicholas' uh, example, um, you know, he's hitting the same now obviously I know this bunker shot's a little bit different but but you know if he's hitting a shot that he needs it to go you know 200 yards he's using a specific club but it's using the same swing as opposed to a shot that he only needs to go to 100 yards again it's the same swing but he's using a different club and the loft is obviously going to do uh, a, a couple of different things the trajectory is going to be different uh, and obviously it's not going to go as far so again I think a lot of people misunderstand things and make it actually much more difficult and I really like how you put how this article was put together, uh, because uh, again, you hit a lot of areas, and these are just five of them. You had I know you had others, and, and I think we might have time for for one more if you can squeeze it in. Um, but what I really like about these anti fundamentals of the short game is you really hit on a lot of areas that many many amateurs struggle with, and a lot of it is because one either misinformation or misunderstanding of the information they're given. And this is why I, I couldn't emphasize enough for, for any of you golfers out there that are working with a, a teaching pro. The worst thing that I hate is when a student comes up, you're explaining something to them, they're pretending like they understand when really they don't because they're too embarrassed to ask questions. Their ego gets in the way. They don't want to ask a question because they're afraid of feeling stupid. I would much rather, even if it ultimately ended up being a dumb question, which I don't believe there are any, but I would much rather a student ask a question to get clarification on something than go under the understanding um, that what I've told them uh, is one way when it may actually be another way. So, you know, don't be afraid to get clarification because I think a lot of times many of these uh, points that we've talked about here so far tonight are areas, again, a lot of times it's a misunderstanding of the information that's provided. And a simple question back or follow-up can sometimes clarify it and give a better understanding and allow you to, uh, to make the correct moves or the correct motions. All right, um, Brandon, I think we've got time for one more. Um, and what I was thinking, I don't know if you have uh, an anti-fundamental uh, that maybe would apply to putting. Do you have one for that? Or if not, uh, anything else is fine. Uh, I'd rather share one that's more specific to wedges because I think it's a really good one okay. that a lot of people okay, good. a lot of people struggle with. If that's okay, um, yeah, no, that's fine. The, the the idea that a chip shot or a small pitch shot is just a miniature version of a full swing mm-hmm. that would be an anti fundamental. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people right. out there that think that. I move the way I move with a seven iron. I set up to it. Uh, the ball position, 
the whatever with a seven iron or when I'm 150 yards away. And if I'm 40 yards away, I just use a sand wedge or a lob wedge and I make a smaller version of that swing. And that could not be farther from the truth. Um, there is a very clear line of delineation, if you will, between what I would call a finesse wedge and a distance wedge. Um, and briefly, I'll, I'll explain the difference. Um, a, a finesse wedge is all about control, control of speed, not only of the club, but more importantly, speed of the ball. It's all about being able to control trajectory. And it's all about being able to control spin. Well, I assure you when you're hitting a seven iron, you're not worried about those things. Generally, you're mm-hmm. trying to hit the ball pretty much as hard as you can, right? You're trying to make it go as far as right. you can, particularly in the last 20 years of our business when everybody seems to be so wrapped up in distance. And so the way you move your body when you're making a full swing is much more designed or should be for power um, so that you can deliver the golf club powerfully to the back of the ball. The, the trajectory is what it is. Do we do – we, can we manipulate trajectory a little bit with an iron and a full swing? Yeah, maybe. You can maybe make it go a little bit higher or maybe make it go a little bit lower, but not really, right? The trajectory is pretty much the trajectory. Right. You're just trying to hit it solid and hit it far and get as much out of the speed as you can. And so you really should have very different technique when it comes to a shot, let's say, inside 40 yards than you would a shot outside 40 yards. Now, that 40 yards moves a little depending on the player. It might be 50 for some. It might be 30 for others, right? But somewhere in there, there's a Mm -hmm. crossover to where you start moving less like a full swing that's concerned with power delivery and more like a finesse wedge that's designed for control, right? Um, And so a lot of Mm -hmm. people don't understand that. A good friend of mine in the industry, James Seekman, is a wonderful short game coach. Um, and and mm-hmm. in, in James's book, he, he outlines the difference in a finesse wedge and a distance wedge beautifully. I don't talk about it as much um, in my wedge book, but people need to understand that, that you shouldn't approach a 40-yard pitch shot the same way you do a 150-yard 7-iron and just try to make a smaller swing. It just doesn't work that way because the club interacts with the ground or should interact with the ground very differently. And so that's an anti fundamental that I have to talk about a lot in my day-to-day teaching with golfers, and I felt like it would be important to share it here. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, again, I can't emphasize enough. I really really think that a lot of the the points that you're hitting on tonight are are areas of the game um, and – Again, the short game, as you point out, one of the anti-fundamentals is, is really representative of about 70% of our golf shots. And so many people spend so much time trying to you know, move heaven and earth to hit that ball with their driver or their longer clubs down the fairway, which certainly we do need practice there as well. But when you're, the majority of your shots, two-thirds or better of your shots, 
are, you know, in the short game area, we need to spend more time working on those areas. And again, a lot of times it's something as simple as, uh, uh, you know, setting up to the ball correctly and understanding what the club is there to do and not try to manipulate or force something uh, along the way. So I, I really, really like this article, and that was one of the reasons why, uh, for lack of better words, repurposed it in a current issue of Golf Tips magazine. Uh, so it's available on newsstands right now, uh, the July-August 2021 issue. Uh, you'll be able to identify it. It's uh, got a great uh, shaded-out image of, of somebody standing in a bunker, uh, but it's uh, got across the top or across the center power package. And one of the great articles, of course, is by uh, my very special panelist guest tonight, Brandon Stukesbury, the anti-fundamentals of the short game. In, fi- in fact, he's talked about five uh, in the article and uh, threw in a, an extra bonus one. So uh, get out and get a copy of this, if you will. Uh, it's available at newsstands. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it at Books A Million, pretty much anywhere most magazines are sold. Um, it's six ninety nine in uh, the U.S., seven ninety nine in Canada, uh, or you can subscribe to the magazine. I'll tell you a little bit more about that a little bit later on. But Brandon, um, always appreciate having you on the show. It's, it's been uh, good to have you back this year. It's been a couple of years since you've been on the show. I know you've been busy with a lot of other stuff, writing books for one, and uh, I was glad you were able to come back on this season and, and jump in some, some coaches' uh, corners for us. And I was really excited about having you come on tonight and talk about uh, some of the stuff that was in this article. Um, but uh, as we get ready to wrap up this segment, um, Brandon, if you want to just uh, let the folks know the best way if they want to reach out to you, and by all means, feel free to uh, to plug your books. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. It, it would uh, it would it would be unprofessional to me, you know, to tell you that you can buy my <laughs> books on Amazon. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Look, anybody that anybody that that needs to get a hold of me or wants to to ask questions or points of clarification or uh, buy a signed copy of the book, everything I have out in the golf world is under Stooksbury Golf. My website StooksburyGolf.com, uh, my Twitter handle Stooksbury Golf, Facebook page. Instagram handle, YouTube channel. It's all under Stooksbury Golf. I joke all the time that. One of the benefits of having a very weird last name is nobody else has that weird last mm-hmm. name, and so I, I, you know, I don't have a problem getting the Twitter handle with my last name. And so everything out there <laughs> is under Stooksbury Golf. I encourage anybody uh, that has any questions or wants to chat short game or or full swing or golf instruction or whatever, uh, please reach out to me. Both of my books are available on Amazon to purchase, and if you think you might like a, a signed copy. Just uh, go to my website, fill out one of the contact forms, and I can sign a book and ship it to you that way. Uh, but, but, Ted, look, I, I said when we started, I'll say it again, I always have a great time. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and, and hopefully we shared some stuff tonight that folks can take home and, and use and get better. I, I have no doubt, and as I said, um, I appreciate having you on. It's uh, It's been fun to have you back this season, and uh, hopefully we'll – We'll be able to help some golfers uh, throughout the remainder of this season, and I'm going to drag you back again next season, hopefully, and, uh, and cont- uh, carry on. But as always, Brandon, I appreciate you bringing your best to the show, and uh, thank you, and, and much continued success with your new uh, position there at, uh, uh, at uh, the uh, Metairie Co- Country Club. I know that they've gotten a, a great uh, professional out there helping them, and I know you're going through some renovations right now, so 
things are a little bit uh, out of sorts, but once everything gets finished, um, I, I know it's going to be a great, uh, a great venue for you to, uh, to uh, continue to do what you do. But thank you very much, as always, and I appreciate you coming on. I look forward to the next time. You got it, Ted. Until then, thank you. Have a good night. All right. Thanks, Brandon. Bye-bye. All right. That was Brandon Stukesbury. Uh, again, Stukesbury Golf is uh, his handle, if you will. Uh, you can just Google it, and you'll find all of the various different social media platforms uh, that he is available. And again, uh, his book, both of his books, The Wedge Book and The Putter Book, are available at Amazon. So you can go to Amazon.com and just search them. You can search through his last name as well. Uh, you can get copies there. Uh, or as he said, you can reach out and fill out one of the contact forms on his website, uh, and uh, he's more than happy to ship you out a signed copy uh, if you want. And let me just tell you, they are both great books. All right, um, excited to have my uh, my guest join me the, sa- uh, the second half of the show. But before I uh, introduce him and bring him on board, um, excited to have a new sponsor uh, joining the show uh, this evening, and that is uh, Golf Pal. Here's a quick, uh, short uh, video, or sorry, audio clip uh, telling a little bit about what they do. This edition of Golf Talk Live is brought to you by Golf Pal. The best place to find only the finest in golf training aids and accessories. Get in on some great deals on leading products such as Down Under Board, Rough Soto, Golf Slingshot, and more. Visit golfpal.golf today. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. Golf Pal. We're serious about your game. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, Equipment, training aids, accessory, and apparel reviews. Golf destinations and travel tips for every budget. And so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, and just to uh, let everyone know, if you go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe, um, you will get a great, great publication uh, shipped out to you. There are six issues every year. Um, it's a really, really good deal. It's available both in print and digital. You can get either or, or you can get both. Uh, it's up to you. Some people like both. Uh, they like to have a, a magazine at home, and uh, some of them with their devices, whether it be an iPad or, or some other device or their computer, they like to look at the digital version as well. Or if they're on the road, uh, you can also view it on your uh, phones as well. Uh, so go to golftipsmag.com. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, in the recent issue, which is the uh, July-August issue, uh, Brandon Stukesbury, who was just on a few moments ago, uh, has a great article that was repurposed, actually tips, if you will, and it's called The Five Anti-Fundamentals of the Short Game. And it's a really, really good article for those of you that are really struggling with your short game. Uh, we touched on them tonight. Obviously, there's a little bit more information in the article itself. Uh, you can read through and get a little... Uh, more detailed explanation, but it's really worth, uh, and you can get that available, as I said, on um, newsstands virtually everywhere, uh, Barnes & Noble or Books A Million, and uh, it's it's really, really worth it. It's available anywhere, really, uh, whether it's here in the United States, Canada, or around the uh, the globe, 
So you just uh, go to golftipsmag.com, subscribe, or visit your local Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or wherever uh, great magazines are sold, and you'll find it there. All right, I'm very excited to have my very special guest this evening, uh, Kevin Buggy. He is the uh, chairman of the Western Golf Association, uh, which conducts national golf championships and oversees the acclaimed Evans Scholar Foundation. And in his role, uh, he is responsible for leading the organization during a critical, uh, critical excuse me, period of national growth that has enabled the Evans Scholars Foundation to reach more young people through caddying uh, than ever before. Uh, in fact, this past year, a record 300 high school students from across the country were awarded the Evans Scholarship, a prestigious full housing and tuition college grant offered to golf caddies. Uh, he's also served in numerous key leadership roles since becoming a WGA director uh, back in 2008, including three years as the co-chair of the WGA's scholarship committee and as the vice chairman for two years before he was elected to serve as the 68th chairman in 2020. So please welcome my very special guest, Kevin Buggy. Good evening, Kevin, and Good welcome evening, to Golf Pat. Talk Live. Yeah, How thanks, are you this Pat. evening? It's great to be with you guys I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm I'm doing fantastic. So let me let me go back a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, and and going back actually several years now, and just talk about really a little bit about the Western Golf Association, how it came about, and then obviously the Evans uh, Scholar Foundation as well, how that sort of came about. So maybe kind of go back a little bit in time and just explain how this came about and what its primary mission was. Sure. Uh, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, the WGA actually started back um, in 1899. We held, held our first uh, golf tournament, which was the Western Open, which is now the third longest-running golf tournament on the PGA Tour. He's only behind the uh, Open Championship and the U.S. Open. So they, uh, the WGA, the Western Golf Association, started running tournaments, and it, it you know, started out as a golf association and running uh, the Western Open and the Western Amateur, among other tournaments. And then in 1916, famed amateur golfer Chick Evans um, won both the U.S. Amateur and the U.S. Open. And while standing on the first tee, about to accept his uh, winnings um, for winning the U.S. Open with his mother, he decided that he wanted to stay an amateur and he was going to take the money that he earned and start a college scholarship. Chick himself was a caddy, went to Northwestern and had to drop out because he couldn't afford to go there anymore. So it took some years uh, to actually convince the Western Golf Association to take on this role to start this scholarship. And in 1930, our first two scholars attended Northwestern University. Fast forward 90 years wow. later, and uh, the WJ is still <laughs> running our golf tournaments and looking over this uh, wonderful Evan scholarship. You know, and, and what's, what's really interesting is, uh, you know, when we look at the youth today and the, the caddy program that you guys have is, is really, um, I would consider to be the best of the best. And it's not only interesting in, in how they're able to understand golf and, and be available to participate in golf, but now they're given the opportunity through the scholarship programs and through the foundation to be able to uh, further their, their education. So tell us a little bit of how that works. So 
um, if, if I was a youngster that was coming through uh, the program, what's involved in getting started with the program, what some of the requirements uh, that would needed to be, uh, to be involved, and kind of walk us through from, from start to finish. Uh, first, you know, as an organization, we believe that caddying is probably the best summer job that any young person uh, can have. There's so many valuable things that are taught, you know, learned from a caddy, taught from a caddy, if it's patience, if it's hard work, spending four hours out on a golf course, you know, with an adult, learning how to communicate with that adult, um, you know, to watch a 13-year-old go from her or she's first year as a caddy to three or four years later and see the transformation of the self-confidence and just to be able to come out of your shell and um, it's just truly amazing. So, you know, first things first, any young people out there, parents listening, please go have <laughs> your son or daughter look to caddy because we think it's a great job. Uh, and then through that process, um, you know, we work with clubs that have caddy programs and we make sure that the caddy managers know about the Evans scholarship and what it is and, and how it becomes available. So we want to then identify, you know, kids in the caddy yards as they're going into their senior year, let them know about the scholarship um, and then have them apply. And, and, you know, kind of the criteria to be awarded the scholarship is a, a strong caddy record. So we want somebody to be in the caddy yard for a minimum of two years and a hundred rounds is kind of like mm -hmm. the base standard um, of that. Um, right. They want, we want them to, we want them to have excellent grades. So they're doing well in school, uh, demonstrated financial mm -hmm. need and then outstanding character. So a, a typical student um, last year or the year before that was awarded the scholarship would have caddied for three-plus years and over 150 loops. Their average GPA uh, would be around a 3.7. Um, average family income would be around $70,000. And then we're also going to look at what they do outside of the classroom or off the golf course. Are they volunteering? Are they team captains? Are they presidents of clubs and things like that? And we kind of put that all together and, um, you know, go through the applications and, and choose the kids that are, uh, you know, most um, qualified for the, for the scholarship. Well, and there's a lot involved, you know, from just listening to, to you now here talking about, there, there's a lot involved, not only going through the process, the application and so forth, um, but there's a reason you're looking for the things that you're looking for um, because it's a serious commitment. I mean, it's not, um, you know, obviously there, there's some fun to it. I mean, they're out there and out in the fresh air and they're, uh, you know, commiserating with, with uh, not only adults, but their, their fellow caddies and so forth. Um, but there's a lot involved in it and it's a commitment. So you're looking for really, a, you know, somebody that's committed on their side as well, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. 100%. And the earlier that we can um, let the kids know about the scholarship, you know, when they first get into the caddy yard and, you know, it's amazing when you sit down with a child and their parent and when they're in eighth grade or ninth grade and let them know that there's a possibility three years from now that um, you could have a full tuition and housing scholarship, how the parents' uh, ears perk up a little bit and make sure that their son or daughter is showing up to the caddy yard at 6 a.m. when they're supposed to four or five, six days a week and making sure they're, you know, you know working hard throughout the year in the classroom and, uh, and again, doing all that great stuff outside of the classroom. Um, on team sports or volunteering and things like that. So it, it is a full commitment. Um, but, you know, I think that the great part about it you know, is because of maybe some of the financial need and some other things, a lot of these kids 
face adversity, like go through some hard times or have put a lot of hard work in over those three or four years. Mm -hmm. So when they do get to college, you know, I I think they're more primed to succeed, you know, and I think that's a big part of Mm -hmm. even what I talked about earlier about how important it is, how great of a job that caddying is or whatever that these kids three or four years later of working hard and understanding the values that, that comes with it. Um, and we, you know, we think are actually better prepared for college and, and, and it helps us have the great success rates in which we do with these kids. You know, and, and there's a lot really that's being offered to them. I mean, you know, the Chick Evans Scholarship, for example, is a full four-year tuition and housing college, uh, college scholarship. So, I mean, it's not small potatoes. I mean, any college, you know, uh, regardless of what it is, you know, to have to cover four years and that, uh, again, is a big commitment on behalf of the the, uh, scholarship funding. And what's really interesting, and I was just sifting through some of the notes uh, over the last uh, few weeks as I was getting ready, you know, you have currently uh, a thousand, over a thousand uh, Evans scholars attending over 19 universities across the country. Um, That's a, that's a pretty impressive number. And the fact that they're able to get out there and basically get a full ride for their education is something special for them. So for them to really, you know, jump in with both feet is is beneficial because that's not an easy thing to, to as we know, I mean, with, with student loans and things like that can be quite costly. So this is a great opportunity for them to, um, you know, have that opportunity to get, you know, to further their education, all of the while learning something that is going to benefit them down the road as well. Um, you guys had a banner year, which is really uh, exciting. I know for you guys, you had around 300, um, I believe, new uh, high school students from across the country that were awarded the Evans Scholarship. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, yeah, we did. We uh, It was a, a record year. Um, as you said, we awarded 300 new uh, scholarships for kids that will be starting uh, this fall. Uh, it was really exciting, and it, it was a banner year in that respect because um, we were setting uh, a new record for the amount of scholarships. But you know, it was also a tough year, right? It was a it was a, a it was a COVID year. Sure. And we didn't really know what was going to happen last March, and you know, we were concerned about our, getting our kids home from school safely and how what was going to happen to caddying last summer. Were their kids going to be able to caddy and all that kind of stuff? So it, it in a in a way it was it was a difficult year, but. Um, but to be able to end the year off by being able to award that amount of scholarships to kids, uh, you know, was really special. And, you know, that goes to thanks to uh, our staff who did an unbelievably great job throughout the year and our leaderships and, of course, you know, our, our supporters and, and people that were there to, to really support the program, um, you know, during a, a difficult time. Um, we, we were lucky mm-hmm. enough last year uh, as a board and as an organization to adopt some new ambitions and goals for uh, 2030, the end of the decade, which would be the 100-year anniversary of the uh, scholarship. And one of those main goals was to increase that number from 1,045 uh, to 1,500 by the end of the year, or by the end of the decade. Wow. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. It, um, you know, when we went through the exercise of kind of come up with these ambitions with a consulting firm, the, you know, the guy said that these are supposed to make you a little bit uncomfortable. And, uh, and that was a big number that kind of <laughs> caught everybody's eye, like, how are we going to do this? But then you sit down and you kind of figure it out one step at a time and, and see how to do it. So for 
2021 to start off, uh, uh, you know, on our way to 2030 to be able to award that many scholarships was a was a really a, a good thing for us. I think it's fantastic and I, I think for for those for the benefit of those listening, whether it be parents or even some youngsters that are tuning in tonight that really maybe don't fully understand um, what a caddy does and, and so on and so forth. Maybe you can touch on because uh, you guys have a, a caddy academy if you will. Talk about really some of the opportunities that it presents and then uh, how long is the program, when does it happen, and what are some of the things that they can expect uh, during that, that particular uh, time? Sure. Uh, a little, uh, probably kind of a little bit of a two-part question, but, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a basic <laughs> caddy, you know, is obviously somebody who's going to carry a bag for, for, for a golfer, and, um, you know, but that four hours is, is their team, right, and they're helping – carry the clubs, uh, pick out distances, break sand traps, um, you know, all the things that you would expect a caddy to do, but they're also there for support, right? You know, they're, um, as you get mm-hmm. better as a caddy, you can figure out when to talk to the, to the golfer and not talk to the golfer. Right. And, and like I said, be a team and, and learn to communicate. You know, so those are some of the basics, and we as an organization do a great job of, of helping clubs and even some uh, public courses that we've opened up some caddy uh, programs at to kind of train kids on how to become a caddy, which kind of leads into what we you were just talking about with our caddy academies. About seven years ago, uh, we came up with this idea for a caddy academy, and, and really the genesis was the two biggest barriers to caddying at the time were gender and location, mm-hmm. and gender being that nationwide um, you know, it's probably maybe 5% of the caddy yards are, are female. Uh, we're a little better with that in sure. the Midwest, uh, more traditional ones. Um, and then location. If you didn't live near a country club or a golf course that had a caddy program, it was very difficult for you to caddy. So the idea was was to bring mm-hmm. girls in from, from even inner city Chicago, from Chicagoland area, and all over the country, and bring them in for seven weeks, um, to, and get them caddy jobs in the Chicagoland area at, at clubs. And it, it turned out to be a huge success. And we kind of went after the, you know, looked for girls in the middle of their freshman year in high school, talked to some, you know, high schools and guidance counselors, and we knew what their grades were and had a, a little bit of a, an idea of their financial background, and they would uh, apply to get into this program, come spend seven weeks in Chicago, caddying you know we made sure they got to the course every single day six days a week uh to caddy to get their rounds in but we also had mentors for them we had uh financial uh uh, you know equivalency or or, or test you know to help them with their finances we had um Mm -hmm. reading you know book clubs and we had speakers come in and just made sure that uh test prep you know for the girls for act and sat and things like that and if the if the girl um, the girls made it through the three years of the program, then they would be eligible to apply for the Evans Scholarship. In the beginning, we thought maybe if we got 50% hit rate, as in they were awarded the scholarship, that would be great. And we're closer to 85 to 90% of the of the participants going through these programs uh, getting the Evans Scholarship. So it's really been uh, a wonderful program for us. It started out with. I think eight girls uh, caddying and living in our Northwestern scholarship house to um, I think at our max before COVID, we had 85 young girls um, caddying 
throughout the summer in mm-hmm. Chicago from all over the country living at uh, Woodlands Academy, which is a prep school up in Lake Forest, Illinois, to the point where it got so good that we started a boys' caddy academy in Chicago and had up to 20 boys doing that. Um, and that, now we started one in the East Coast in Philadelphia, and this summer we started a, a new one in Seattle. And so it, it, it's been wonderful in, in many different aspects, not only to, to see these girls come in and, you know, kind of see them grow for, you know, three years of being shy girls that maybe have never been on a plane before to, to you know, prospering and doing well and getting the scholarship, but it's also helped us grow our program because we're bringing more people in. And, and from a diversity uh, aspect, not only, you know, mainly girls in these programs, but they're also 95% are of color uh, as well. So um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's really been a great program for us, and it's a good um, kind of model that we can look into other cities throughout the country to kind of model that as we try to get to that 1,500 number that I was talking about earlier and get in, you know, to the caddy recruitment process. This has turned out to be a great model that we can use you know, in other parts of the country. You know, what, what's interesting, I, I just want to dial in a little bit back to something that you just said with, with sort of the increase of, of female participants. You know, in, traditionally in the golf industry here over the last several years, we've noticed a substantial growth, particularly in young women coming to the game. Um, but one of the problems that we've found is, you know, obviously the only exposure typically is what they see uh, on television, you know, the tours, the LPJ, that sort of thing. And obviously not everyone is going to be able to make it out on tour. So it's, it's great that this is another option um, for them to get introduced to the game. Because just to give you an example, again, with 2020, with everything going on with the pandemic and, and, and everything else, um, despite that, golf has really uh, had a, a substantial increase in the number of people not only coming back out to play, but new golfers. And just to give you an example of some numbers, according to the National Golf Foundation, there were approximately 400,000-plus young women that have been introduced to the game. So this has got to be really exciting for you guys because this is a way through your program that they can get introduced to the game that's maybe not as intimidating. Uh, it's getting them to learn a little bit more um, other parts of the game. Whether they you know, become a great player or not is really irrelevant. They're getting introduced to golf, and it could be potentially something that uh, could open doors for them in other ways down the road, and at the same time, giving them the option uh, to uh, get a great education through uh, the Scholarship Foundation. Um, do you see with that influx of young women coming into golf as an opportunity for you guys to really say, hey, let's point them in a direction here. We have another viable option in golf that we can offer them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a great point. And, uh, you know, COVID was bad in so many ways for so many people, but it turned out to be really good for the game of golf. And and in theory, we'll probably turn out, you know, if – if we can continue this wave and keep the retention of people getting into the golf, especially young females, like you mentioned, uh, you know, it'll be good for, mm-hmm. for the Evans scholarship and, and to get girls involved in the game and, you know, and, and how do you, you know, get involved. And we think caddying gets people involved with golf. If you're going to be out on the golf course and watch people play, you know, four or five days a week for a few years, you're probably going to show some interest yourself <laughs> and want to try uh, the, the game as well. Right. 
and even at our cat academies, we make mm-hmm. sure that the girls get golf lessons, uh, you know, throughout the, uh, the summer. And, and, you know, we, I think it's safe to say that we both love the game of, of, of golf a lot and golf gives us a lot of great sure. life lessons or whatever. And, and it's something, you know, I, I have two children and my daughter has not gotten into golf. Maybe someday she will again. And my son has or whatever, but it's a great life sport to have. Right. And you're talking about when these girls yes. do graduate from college and they go on into their business careers or whatever the careers they go into golf is a great way, right. To, to, meet people, mm-hmm. to communicate with people, to forge relationships. And if we can start that at a young age, especially with young females, to get them into the game of golf and help them along with their careers, just an extra benefit to what we're doing. You know, and it's interesting, too, you, you also mentioned that um, you've got a, uh, getting a, a higher percentage now of women of color. And it's interesting that you say that because I've had the pleasure of interviewing uh, a number of, of uh, women of color on my show over the years who are have become very well entrenched in golf. They're certainly not LPJ professionals in, in the sense of playing on tour, uh, but they are LP, uh, LPJ teach professionals and so forth. Um, and they recognize just the point you you mentioned a, a second ago is the benefits in business of. In fact, one young lady that was on the show, I think, if not last year, the year before. And she said one of the things that, and she was, you know, working uh, for one of the major banks. And she said one of the things that used to bother her is, you know, she would come in after a weekend, and you know, money more in a, you know, typical water cooler conversation, <laughs> and you know, the guys were talking about all this great golf they were playing on the weekend, or you know, they were t- entertaining clients or what have you, going out. And she said she felt very left out because she really didn't know that much about golf. So finally, you know, she nudged one of them and said, hey, you know, what, what's going on and, you know, what are you guys talking about? And they encouraged her to go out. And now she encourages other. And, and again, this was something that she had never really, you know, wasn't brought up in a golfing family, didn't go through it. So I can really see this, you know, through the WGA and through the uh, Evan Scholarship Program being an opportunity to get into a lot of minority communities that maybe otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to the game traditionally. Um, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And, and I think that's part of our, you know, plan as we, we talk about those 2030 ambitions is, is how do we reach our, our, our broader markets or, you know, per se of potential youth caddies and, and really find the, the, the kids out there that really need help to getting to getting to college. And, and it's just a fantastic, you know, idea. And we actually did this in Detroit uh, over the winter. I had, um, read one of Mitch Albom's books uh, and in the back of it, he talked about a charity that he started in Detroit. Um, and I kind of looked it up and they had a youth division um, called play Detroit and it rewarded good academics with sports. And I'm like, they have a, a large program of use in this program that or whatever, and they could be potential 11 scholars. And then we got introduced to another program out there called midnight golf uh, you know, that helps kids get to college of, you know, minorities in the Detroit area. And we all got together and did a bunch of Zoom calls and got some parents on the line. And all of a sudden they were like, wait, we can have kids from inner city Detroit, you know, whatever amount of money a year caddying and potentially get a free scholarship. And they're like, where do we sign up? You know, so I think we ended up right. getting, uh, <laughs> close to 40 or 50 young African-American kids from Detroit to caddy this summer and you know it was it was really it was, it was truly amazing it was great um and not everyone will be an evan scholar but every like i said before everyone will benefit 
if they put the hard work in from caddying. Uh, you know, so yes, with our growth potential, that will be a big part of it. Well, I think it, it all begins with really sort of planting that seed. Uh, again, you know, typically, um, you know, when I grew up, I mean, you know, my father played golf. I was, well, probably younger than this, but before I really understood anything, I was probably around six or seven years old. And, uh, you know, he took me to the driving range a little bit earlier than that with, you know, sawed off club and, you know, I swiped at it a few times, but really didn't understand. And then when I got to about that age, you know, he took me out and, and, and taught me the game. So I was very, very fortunate. And, you know, I'm not to go my age here, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 58 next year. So I've been around for a little while. But there's a lot of kids out there that maybe didn't have that opportunity. Maybe their family doesn't have anybody in there that golfs. And, or maybe, they, as you say, they live in an inner city and that. And, and I, I hate to say this is the one criticism I have about the golf industry is unfortunately – most of the marketing that we see on a big scale is of the tours and not knocking it. It's great. I love watching the, the events and had an exciting U.S. Open that just happened. But the problem is that most people's perception of golf is at a, uh, a sport at a very, very high level. And, you know, it's just not for me. There's no way I'm ever going to compete out in the PGA or the LPGA Tour. Um, so it's not for me. And it's unlike many other sports that are, are exposed in typical school formats like football, baseball, that's in the regular curriculums. Uh, golf is not there to the same level. So something that you're offering here kind of breaks down that, that barrier a little bit, don't you think? I mean, by getting them out, you know, again, whatever they do down the road is up to them, but getting them exposed to the game at an earlier age um, to many kids that maybe don't have that opportunity, I, I think is going to be a good thing long term. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. And and by the way, I was a, a young eight year old that had a uh, uh, sawed down seven <laughs> iron with a wooden shaft and a and a putter yeah. with my father as well. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I was lucky enough to have you know somebody introduce me to the game. Uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Like, you know, golf has this you know this image of maybe being an elite of sports and you know, country clubs in particular just aren't, you know, as diverse and things like that. And, and if we can use caddying and use the potential of a scholarship to find more young kids uh, to get into the game of golf that way, you know, you know, more the better. And, and if it's, uh, you know, if it's an older sibling, you know, teaching their younger sibling, look what happened to me, you can do this as well, being role models and, and, and or a next generation from now of Evan Scholar alums that had children that said, no, caddying and golf is a great thing. Here's the reason why. And, you know, pass that information mm -hmm. down. Um, uh, you know, yes, I think there's a great potential, you know, for growth of the game. Well, and I think, I also think too, that, you know, one of the other avenues typically, and again, it, it's not always available for everybody is through scholarship programs, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, making it on the, on the, you know, collegiate golf team, division one, two or three, um, you know, that's not going to be for everybody. So, you know, for somebody that maybe has never played the game, that kind of eliminates them a little bit from even competing or getting out there because they just don't play the game. But what, what really you're offering here is an opportunity to get introduced to the game, whether you play good or not, um, you're understanding at what I would consider more of a grassroots level, because now you're not just understanding 
uh, or being taught about how to swing the club or so on. I mean, obviously, you mentioned that they, they do get some instruction uh, throughout the program, but they're learning a different part of the game. They're learning to understand about yardages, distances, and things, and, and communicating with, with you know, the person that they're carrying that bag for and understanding what's going in their mindset. And it gives them a little bit of an insight from a position that typically most people, I mean, I certainly didn't get it when I was growing up. I mean, you know, dad just, you know, put me up and said, okay, here's what you got to do. But I didn't understand all the, the, the nuances into the game. So it's very interesting what you guys are doing. And I, I applaud you for, um, you know, for, for being uh, very ambitious and trying to get those numbers up, which brings me to a question. Um, you, you know, you talked about by 2030, you want to get up to that 1500 number. Um, are you reaching out to other courses, other avenues to, to really expand this and get this into even a bigger program, not just with the number of students, but getting it further afield so that it is going to be available in more markets than what it currently is? Are you also looking at doing some of that expansion? We, we are, and we, and we have been. And, uh, you know, traditionally we have been, you know, kind of a, a Midwest type of organization throughout history, but we now do officially expand from coast to coast. Um, we're in Oregon and Washington. We have chapter houses mm-hmm. there as far west. We're in Colorado. And um, the big push now really is looking towards the East Coast. Uh, East Coast do have mm-hmm. a lot of traditional older clubs that do have caddy programs. Um, some of them have adult caddy programs, but we can work with that. But uh, we opened a house uh, a few years ago back at Penn State, um, we announced this week, actually out at our BMW Media Day, that we're having our first two scholars go to the University of Maryland uh, this fall, and we'll continue wow. to look to add houses um, on the East Coast. And, and, and it's been good. It's, it's a, kind of been a, a tightrope going out east because there are some established caddy uh, scholarships out there. They're not quite the, the size of ours um, in the sense that they're not full tuition and, and housing, but they are you know, caddy scholarships and we don't want to step on anybody's toes. So we've learned to kind of navigate the waters and, and have some partnerships with uh, the New Jersey state golf association. Uh, Jay Wood Platt is one in the Philadelphia mm-hmm. area, Westchester County, Long Island, all these places. And we're trying to come in and say, here's what we do. Here's what you do. How can we help as many kids as possible? We have the same mission. We're all trying to do the same thing. How can we do this together? So, um, so, so we are looking, uh, you know, especially and maybe try to revitalize uh, some caddy programs that maybe aren't as strong as they used to be, or if they are mainly adult caddy mm-hmm. programs, how can we get 10 or 20 high school kids in there? Uh, one of our big success stories really is at Seminole Golf Club, uh, where maybe a lot of your people listening watched the Walker Cup uh, uh, a month or so ago. Um, right. They started, we, with the help of one of our directors and supporters, started a youth caddy program at Seminole, four or five years ago, and we had our first Evan Scholar recipient from the club, uh, you know, this year. And it was, you know, it was kind of a, a big deal for us to say that if we can do it at Seminole, we can do it at other places. I think it's great, you know, because we, we've heard this term, and you'll understand when I say it, in golf for a long, long time, is, you know, what can we do to grow the game? And there's so many tentacles, if you will, that you can reach out to. As I said, you know, obviously playing is one aspect of um, what you're doing is another aspect of it. Um, and it really, I think what you're doing and reaching out to other organizations who, you know, run maybe similar programs or some form of, of a similar program to what you're doing, I think is really going to be beneficial because 
you know, as we look at the, the growth of the game, you know, we've got obviously, you know, I'm falling into that, that category faster than I'd like, but mm-hmm. you know, as we get into an aging population, as am I. <laughs> um, yeah, we, uh, you know, we have to look forward. And, and unfortunately, typically, uh, again, because of not having the same exposure maybe that you or I had, um, the younger generation are looking at, and we're competing now with so many other um, activities out there. And what we typically look at as traditional golf, um, not saying that there is an interest there, but they're interested in other, I mean, enter- entertainment, for instance, um, you know, ha- hence, you know, top golf and other things like that are, are really reaching out to the younger community. So I think it's, I think by reaching out and, and working together with other organizations, both within your specific demographic and also in other areas of the sport, I think is going to be very, very beneficial working. You know, I always believe more oars in, in the water rowing in the same direction uh, is, is going to get you where you need to go a little bit faster. And I think one of the criticisms, as I said, of, of golf in the past is we, we have tended to go down the same path too many times and, you know, we've got a younger generation who looks at golf differently than maybe what you or I looked at. So we've got to always be evolving and, and finding ways to, to do that. So one of the things I know that you guys uh, started um, in 2020 was a, a very aggressive um, fundraising campaign. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so in 2020, um we had a quiet phase of it uh, a little bit earlier, but we, uh, you know, officially publicly announced what we call the Promise Campaign, and it was really the largest mm-hmm. uh, comprehensive capital campaign that we have ever uh, undertaken as an organization. And uh, and if we were going to get to these ambitions and goals that we're going to 2030, we knew we kind of had to do things to kind of transform the organization. And having a capital campaign was, you know, one way to do it. And the reason why it's called the Promise Campaign because we want to make a promise you know, porters to our scholars and to the people that are out there, you know, under our umbrella that, you know, we're going to promise to, to grow the number of kids to help grow the game of golf, um, to make sure that we are uh, financially sound so we can do the great work that we're, we're doing, you know, for generations to come. So it's, it's really been amazing. We started out, um, I think as uh, a goal of 200 million over three years and uh, has grown to, now a $300 million goal in five years, and we were up to $225 million uh, as of this year. And um, I personally, because it's my last year as uh, chairman, uh, my term runs up at the end of the year that I'd mm-hmm. like to see us get to that $300 million goal um, <laughs> by the end of this year. And I think there's a good chance for it, but if not, I think we'll reach it um, by next year. And it, it's been wonderful to, to really to go out and, and talk to our supporters and talk to our alumni and, and just, we have such a great story to tell and we always haven't been that great at telling it. And maybe before the price mm-hmm. of college skyrocketed over the last 10 or 15 years, we were pretty good at raising the money that we needed to raise through what was our traditional park club um, donations that we get from members of, of clubs. And we realized that things had changed, but to, to see, you know, the, the response, uh, you know, to the people um, that have been so supportive us over the years to, to help fund this campaign has just been truly remarkable and just inspiring and, you know, heartwarming to see all the, the great support that we've got. So very appreciative to anybody who, uh, you know, has, has stepped up to the plate and part of that $225 million. 
Well, I think that you know, anytime you get behind something, and and you know, it's it's always an investment, and you're always going to get a return on that investment, some way, shape, or form. And in this way, really, what you're doing is you're exposing a younger generation, um, you know, through the various uh, you know programs that you're offering. Uh, an opportunity to uh, again, and it's not just about you know people think well you know it's great they're going out and they're playing golf or they're caddying and and so on, but it's much more than that as as you touched on very early on and I agree 100%. You know there are so many uh, above anything else, uh, any other sport, any other game. Golf teaches so many life lessons um, out there, and that's one of the reasons that I've really been drawn. I mean I teach you know golf uh, on the side as well. And that's one of the things I always really enjoyed about it. It's not just going out there and playing, but it's just, you know, some of the challenges that you're faced with out in the golf course mimic many of the challenges that we face out in everyday life. So it's kind of interesting how they kind of intertwine. So, you know, I can see where many of the supporters and donors and, 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 and so forth that have invested over the years and now particularly through this Promise campaign um, really have an opportunity to you know, as I said earlier, grow the game. So it's, it's to their, you know, to their benefit, I'm sure, uh, you know, many of them maybe have had kids that have gone through some of the organizations have had people that have gone through the program uh, or will at some point, maybe down the road. So it's really an opportunity to, to develop and invest in something that is going to pay back many, many times over, uh, not just through the local community, but on a national basis, because as you continue to grow and expand, um, you know, it's it's something that's going to be, um, I think, very effective in in shaping these youngsters uh, for their futures. And golf is a great way to do it. I mean, you know, as I know you know, Kevin, is golf has been considered to be, you know, a game that has allowed so many leaders um, to do tremendous amounts of business out in the golf course. It's It's probably the number one sport when it comes to fundraising. There's more golf tournaments that, that raise funds for charities and other uh, you know, organizations than any other sport. The others don't even come close. So there's something very special about this game, and obviously you recognize it. And uh, I think these youngsters, as they go through uh, the, the various different programs, are going to see that as well. So I can understand why somebody would want to get behind what you're doing. Um, what else would you like to do yeah, to before your time ends? Um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yep, you go ahead, Kevin. Uh, just to add on a, a little bit about that, sorry to interrupt, is, uh, you know, you talked about an investment, yep. you know, into their futures, and we're investing in these kids, and it's great to watch them succeed, and I can talk a little bit about our success rates at 95% graduation rate, and they have, you know, GPAs over 3.4, you know, but I think it's that family atmosphere that we bring them, but it, when we make an investment in them, they go out and become successful, and now we have over 13,000 you know, alumni of the programs and they go out and, and understand how great the game of golf is, how much caddying helped them, how much the Evan Scholars program helped them, and then they're willing to give back. So it, it's really a great formula for yep. us in so many ways, but we right. make that early investment in a young person, even at the age of 14 in seventh or eighth grade when we get them to become a caddy and then we get them to college. And then now we're trying to figure out through a career services program as part of the Promise campaign, how do we get them their first job and how do we help them be successful in life? And then that, you know, just perpetuates that small investment along the way, you know, comes back, uh, you know, back 
and and then some, you know, our alumni are, are some of our biggest supporters, uh, you know, of the program. So it's just, mm-hmm. it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a good, good feel good uh, kind of formula of how things, you know, circle back, you know, with that, just that original investment in a young person. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and like I said, I think that, you know, we're always in this business, always struggling to find ways to to grow the game, and and I really like um, you know what you guys have done over the years. I've had others in the past that have come on from WGA on the show, and I've always uh, you know sort of uh, kept an open door policy because I really believe in what you're doing, and I think it's um, I think it's very. You know, as I said, there's so many other areas in the game that we try to grow through teaching and and so forth, and those are great too. But you know, I think a lot of times, you know, caddying as an example is something that most people don't think of. They see the caddies on the PGA Tour or the LPGA, and but they don't really understand that um, what goes on behind. I mean, think of some of the the famous caddies. I mean, that have uh, caddied for Tiger, that have caddied for Phil and and and, and uh, Freddie Couples and so many of the others that you know, have really made a name for themselves. And these guys just, you know, they're on the bag week in, week out. And uh, just some of the great work. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, I, I don't know whether there's any that, that you can think of off the top of your head, but is there anybody that you can think of that has gone through the WGA program that uh, has gone on and continued on uh, maybe becoming a professional caddy? I can't think of one off my head. I, I do know, I, I don't know the young man's name, and I probably should, but there is one of our other scholars that uh, this year uh, was caddying for uh, a rookie on the LPGA. And and I don't know the names of either one of them, and I should, and I apologize for that. Um, but I, <laughs> no, I don't right. know of any that have really gone on to, to caddy for Tiger Woods or anything like that. Uh, um, but it's interesting, no. but you, would, you, you can go ask any one of our alumni or anybody who's ever gotten that scholarship and he or she will remember their first round as a caddy and what they felt mm-hmm. like. And, yep. and, and they will come back and, and, and then you hear these kids when we interview them for the, the scholarship and we uh, read their essays um, when I was on the scholarship committee, read through their essays and talk about how important that caddying was or that some member uh, at the club took a special interest in a young person that you needed somebody to take a special interest at the time and the effect that that, person could have on that you know person's life is truly amazing yeah i think it's uh, i think it's a, a great program so where can we go to get more information for those who are listening maybe it's a parent that's listening maybe it's a youngster that's listening and say you know what that sounds like something that might be of interest to me uh it sounds like a, a great opportunity to not only get introduced to the game but obviously enhance my education um where can they go to get more information about uh, both wga and obviously the evans scholar uh, Ship Foundation. Yeah, so we, we have a website and it's wgaesf.org um, and they can go to that website and they can learn all about the great championships that we conduct uh, including the BMW Championship and learn more about the Evans Scholarship. Um, I, I think even there you can learn, read some training manuals on, on how to become a caddy and what a caddy is. We have a bunch of information like that we can help you locate if you live near any country clubs that have caddy programs and, and help people in, in the areas that way to, to identify places where they may be able to caddy. But, uh, yeah, the website's a great resource for a little bit of our history about what we do, about what the scholarship is, and, uh, you know, it's worth a look for any parent or young person out there. 
And I know that you, I'm sure, have a variety of different campaigns that you do uh, to reach out through, obviously, your alumni and that. But um, if they are interested in what we just talked about, the Promise campaign, maybe helping you to reach that uh, $300 million before the end of the year, uh, <laughs> is there a link on the website that they can go to to, to, get, more, to get more information? Yes. Uh, uh, yes. To do that as well, that's on the website? It absolutely is, and if there wasn't one, I would have definitely made sure by now that there is. But, yeah, you can go to the website <laughs> and find a button that says to donate now, and uh, and we would appreciate any and all uh, contributions that can be made towards our campaign or, as we talked about, really it's a donation to an investment in a young person's lives. When your year is over, what's going to be next for you? What are you, uh, you going to do next? Yeah, it's, 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 that's a good question, and I've talked to our CEO a little bit about that. I, I am still relatively young, uh, a few years younger than you, but not by many, and uh, and I don't really want to be kind of like put out to pasture type thing as a as a past chairman. That I, I think I have a lot to give to this program that I love so much. So you know, I'll I'll, I'll continue mm-hmm. to volunteer as much as possible. I'll hopefully, serve on committees. Um, I am a uh, what we call a director, which is kind of our volunteer. Uh, leadership program at my mm-hmm. local club and I would always be an ambassador uh, and help our our kids in our caddy program to identify kids that can become Evan scholars and things like that. But, uh, you know, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, hopefully they won't kick me out too far away from the place, but, um, you know, I've been involved for <laughs> over 15 years now and I've been a park club member for over 25 and, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I plan to help out as as much as they want me to, uh, as long as I can in the foreseeable future, for sure. Well, I figured that you would have some connection one way or the other. Um, obviously, you've been <laughs> involved with the organization, as you said, a number of a number of years, and and obviously have served it well. And and uh, I I have no doubt that uh, that uh, they're going to reach the uh, the goal of the Promise campaign. I hope that they do. Uh, again, I think it's a worthwhile organization and. Um, just the, the the format and how everything's set up, I think, is a, is a win-win. So I'm uh, going to encourage anybody tuning in to jump on that website. It's uh, wgaesf.org. Um, a lot of great information on there, and there is a, uh, a link there to uh, to connect uh, if you want to uh, contribute to the Promise campaign and uh, and help Kevin out. Um, well, Kevin, listen, thank you very much for joining me tonight on uh, Golf Talk Live. It's been a pleasure. It's been an interest, uh, an interesting discussion. I, I always learn something a little bit new when I have guests on the show. And uh, congratulations, really, on, on uh, and setting a record uh, with 300. Um, I, I think uh, you guys can can maybe uh, bump that number up again uh, for for next year and even get above that. And um, we I, think it's, sure. uh, I think it's fantastic what you guys are yeah, I have no doubt. Um, but thank you very much for joining me. It's been great uh, uh, spending some time with you. And um, I hope that you will uh, continue to keep doing the great work that you've been doing. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and, and thanks for having me on and letting me talk about the Western Golf Association and the Evans Scholars Program and giving us a platform to, 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 to speak about the great things that we do. We really appreciate it. Uh, and I enjoyed the segment before to learn about anti-fundamentals in my wedge game. I'm a little worried about going oh, yeah. out to play tomorrow because I'm not sure how I'm going to react to that. But, uh, <laughs> but again, thank you. I've enjoyed it, and I appreciate uh, like you giving, us, giving me the time to talk about something I'm passionate about. Not a problem. Kevin, have a great weekend. Happy 4th of July to you and your family. Uh, be safe, and uh, you're welcome to come back anytime, and uh, maybe we'll help you with a short game. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks. Same to you. Bye-bye. <laughs>
All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. That was my very special guest, the chairman of the Western Golf Association, Kevin Buggy. Uh, again, you can go to WGAESF.org to learn more about uh, not only the Western Golf Association, but the uh, Evans uh, Scholar Foundation and all of the great work of the Caddy Program and so on and so forth is all available on their website. So make sure you go and check it out. And, uh, and again, um, I would strongly encourage you to donate as well uh, to help some of these youngsters uh, get out there and really get exposed to the game uh, from a different angle, really, than, than um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, than what typically most kids uh, uh, see. I think it's a great summer job, as Kevin pointed out. I think it's a great opportunity for them to learn uh, a, a little bit about the game from a different perspective, but it's also a great opportunity with a little hard work that they can get out there and actually uh, help their education, their further education, if you will, uh, and, and uh, getting connected with some uh, great business opportunities uh, down the road as well once they've completed everything. So um, on that note, uh, again, thank you to Brandon Stukesbury for uh, joining me for a special Coach's Corner panel earlier. Thanks, Brandon, for always uh, bringing your best. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for listening in this week uh, Golf Talk Live. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, happy 4th of July, everybody. God bless. And I will see you next time on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.